0: Good evening. Welcome to episode 00034 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to 8 this evening. I'll start off by acknowledging the people whose land I am broadcasting from this Christmas Eve the land of the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So this is the final show of the year. and I guess at this time of year we all sit back and we reflect on the year that was, and my God, wasn't it a long year? Uh, I think some people are saying that 2019 felt like the longest, longest year on record, and uh, I can't really disagree. But for this show, it's time to sit back, chillax... Maybe have a bit of a reminisce about the year that was But of course sadly, this program only goes for an hour or so So we can't take too comprehensive a look back But we'll just give you a little bit, little tidbits here and there So there's going to be a bit of a different show tonight um, I've been honoured to have yarned with so many deadly people this year It's, um, it's been humbling and great And I think um, hopefully you and I have learnt a lot together People like Jill Gallagher, Uncle Jack Charles, Stan Grant, Lydia Thorpe, Richard Franklin, Buna Laurie, Gutjie Edwards, Marcy Langton, Claire G. Coleman, Nellie Crom, June Oscar, just to name a few. And I could play selections from any of those various interviews and conversations about a whole range of subjects. But, you know, It does seem unfair just to um, highlight one particular interview, but as we all know, life is unfair. So I'm going to play an extract from an interview I did earlier this year that you'll hear shortly after a couple of tracks. It's uh, my conversation with Bruce Pascoe, and I think it's, you know, a conversation that's worth revisiting, given the goings-on of what's been happening recently, both politically and with our climate and with the voice of the Parliament, and you know, um, I have whittled the conversation, which was originally a 45-minute conversation, back to about 14 minutes. But uh, you know, it's well worth revisiting, I think, so we'll do that. And for something completely different this Christmas Eve, uh, I'm going to actually do a live reading of my essay, 10 More Days. And I guess that essay kind of sums up why I do things like this show, and it's probably a fitting way to end the last show of the year. So, as always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. So, I'll ladle some eggnob into whatever vessel you're using, sit back, relax. This is the mission on Triple R 102.7.
1: Hi, I'm Kevin Shootie, and I'm listening to 3 Triple R.
0: Thanks for tuning in, Sheeds. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your support throughout uh, my first year of broadcasting here at Triple R. Okay, so, like I mentioned um, at the uh, top of the show, I'm going to play a whittled down version of the interview I recorded earlier this year with Bruce Pascoe. And I thought it was a timely reminder of what the man is actually on about, some of the issues that he's been addressing. Um, There's been so much noise from, you know, squeaky wheels in and around society So I thought it would be useful to remind everyone uh, of that conversation And, you know, just give people a little bit of food for thought As things begin to slow down over the Christmas and New Year's break You're listening to Triple R 102.7 FM It is quarter past seven And this music is part of the edit of Bruce Pascoe's interview So, sit back, relax, and enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. I welcome Uncle Bruce Pascoe to
1: Triple R. Lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: You, um, You've dedicated your life to educating people across the country about, you know, Australia's true history. Um... What instigated uh, Young Dark Emu in particular?
1: Uh, look, I think it's just so important that uh, all Australians are aware of um, the real nature of their country, um, how it was managed in the past and um, wh- why it was managed in that way. You know, we not only do we uh, miss out on our history, but we also miss out on our land management.
0: Yeah, you, the, the sad irony of, um, you know, the hours and hours and years of research that you've put into to putting these pieces together is that a lot of it is based on the first-hand accounts of um, invaders. Um, How did you find that process?
1: I I found it a bit sad. Um, It was a shock to me to read um, some of the things I read because You know, having had an Australian education, I was unaware of all of it. Um, Almost all of it was new to me, and um, so it just shows you how badly prepared our young people are for the truth of their country. And the thing that saddened me most was that it was so readily available. Um, You know, I Mm. had to crawl through libraries and archives and things like that, but it wasn't rocket science or brain surgery or anything like that. It was uh, readily available. Other people had read it, and uh, it had been denied our people. Yeah, I've obviously... Um, all, all Australians, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're, and we've been poorer for it. Um, uh, reading Dark Emo, I've you know, I've you know, read it a few times now, I just found myself on, on numerous occasions just getting so angry. Um, yes. You know, angry... Um, for a number of reasons, just at the, the total, you know, and um, willful destruction of, you know, the culture of our people, the practices of our people. But what I found just as infuriating was the, I guess, the arrogance. I, I think, you know, the, the, the first, you know, settlers, for want of a term... Um, recognised that some of these practices were unique, and some of them were innovative, and some of them had been born through thousands of years of uh, practice and refinement, but their own arrogance couldn't allow them to actually embrace any of those practices.
1: No, Australia began as, um, you know, in 1778, as a racist country and uh, it's distorted our view of our our country ever since. Um, You have to work really hard um, to look at the things that Aboriginal people had built um, and the land practices they employed and describe them as the work of savages.
0: I think once you know some of the the true history and, you know... of Australia, but particularly here in Victoria, some of the places you then visit become quite eerie because a lot of these places brandish the, the names of those places as spoken by the traditional owners at the time of European invasion. So I'm thinking of, I can reel off dozens and dozens of names, but I'm thinking about where I grew up, um, uh, a town called Euroa in um, uh, northeast Victoria. Now that's for, um for Joyful. And yet, if you go there today, um, and certainly growing up there as a kid, you had no you, you had no clue as to whose land you were on. You had no clue as to how, you know, the Sevens Creek there, as it's now known, would have been utilised by Aboriginal people, how it would have been a source of life for them. And the same could be said for so many other places, like, um, you know, Benalla just up the road, in which, um, you know, a, a famous Masswell an infamous massacre took place um, in the in the late 1840s. Um, once you know that type of history, it, it just makes you just go um, deeper into the place itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. It helps um, heal your relationship with the land. Oh, that's um, a great way of putting it. it. Real yeah. History. yeah. And, um, look, we've... We can't... We have to know the past. We can't dwell on it. We have to. We've got to look after our kids and our grandkids, and um, make sure that we can get the best out of the country that we can. You know, when I say the best out of the country, I mean the people. Um, we've flogged the poor old country to death. Um, we need to respect Mother Earth and um, treat her far more gently than we do. It's criminal um, what we've done to the soil in many parts of Australia. We need to treat her better. We need to treat her as our mother um, and look after her and, um, so that she can look after us. Because at the moment, we're, we're crippling her ability to look after us.
0: You talk about, um, uh, in both Dark Emu and young Dark um, Emu, about how Aboriginal people had... Protected the the soil before um, European settlement. Do you want to just um, you know describe some of the practices and what some of the the early invaders found in relation to soil?
1: Yeah, our old people um, relied on Australian plants. Um, you know, and it's kind of ridiculous to even think that that's uh, radical. Um, but Europeans were so obsessed with their own culture that they brought their own plants. They dismissed everything of any kind of um, Aboriginal provenance and um, refused to acknowledge that Aboriginal people were actually farming. Um, and so we, we brought down Northern Hemisphere plants and um, fed them fertiliser and water, as Northern Hemisphere plants need in this country. and. we destroyed the soil in many places, Uh, some places have lost 13 metres of topsoil that's absolutely criminal Um, because we've used hard-hoofed animals we've insisted on ploughing a land which probably should never have been ploughed, I'm not talking about every corner of the country, there are some corners that can survive ploughing, but when we use perennial plants like the old people did, perennial Australian plants that are adapted to the climate and adapted to the pests and diseases Um, you don't need chemical fertilizer you don't need um, pesticide you don't need any extra water and the root masses of these plants are massive it's actually every australian child should uh, see a stem of kangaroo grass and then be shown what what it's like underneath the soil it's you know, 10 times as large underneath the soil. That's what holds the soil together. And that's where the nutrients come from, deep deep beneath the soil. They're Australian plants, they know that to get their moisture, they have to go deep. And that's where the richness in Australian soils lies, um, with these massive root systems and then we replace it with wheat. It's got a piddly little bloody root system and um, can't hold the soil together. We have to plough every year so we can plant it, and we're destroying the soil in the process. Sir Thomas Mitchell saw our murnong growing right across the western district, and probably um, the biggest field of agricultural endeavour the world has ever seen, And, and the sheep destroyed it virtually in one night. Whenever the sheep went, they destroyed that plant. And that system of growing food, we're trying to replicate down here on my farm now, because Aboriginal people were companion planting. Um, They were using perennials, Australian perennials, companion planting, and the whole system worked so well. And uh, Mitchell was so impressed, so was Lieutenant Gray, so was Sturt. All of them extolled the beauty of the country, its productivity. Um, but people like Mitchell hardly seem to recognise that it was the agency of Aboriginal people.
0: I want to talk um, briefly about the, the, the role of missions in, in the revival of Aboriginal culture and I guess the birth of what I would suggest would be the birth of the social justice movement here in um uh, in Australia, and I don't think people uh, usually equate missions with a place as a place of uh, revival of culture, and they certainly don't um, uh, think of these missions as, as a place where the seeds were sown for the, the, the modern social justice movement. And again, I guess I'm being a little bit biased here when I'm thinking of um, places like Gunja in, in, in particular. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, how uh, the mission system worked in Victoria?
1: Um, yeah, I do. Um, are you related to Shadrach James?
0: Yeah, that's right. He's um, yeah. my great-great-grandfather. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, my my father um, and his father knew, uh, knew Shadrach James um, through um, both sport and church. Oh, there you go. Um, so, yeah. Well, and, and that's because you're... You've got, in your family, you've got that heritage of um, activism, yep. um, you know, sometimes people think that the church wasn't active in um, social welfare, but sometimes it were. sometimes they worked against it, um, but some of our people were able, in the shadow of the church, to get some things done, so it's not all bad. Um, But even the best of missionaries um, were prejudiced against our culture in many ways. You know, they would allow us to do some things but not speak language or, um, you know, they would allow us to speak language but not talk culture. You know, it was very, very hard to find anyone who, you know, totally embraced Aboriginal culture you know, even James Dawson in the Western District, who everybody refers to, he was still sitting on our land. You know, he was yeah. still a colonist. Um, and It just stuns me that people don't realise that, you know, finding the best European um, doesn't me- necessarily mean you found a very good European. Um, and it distorts our history. But, you know, the missions did an incredible amount. I, I think of the Moborns... You know, who protested their treatment at places like Lake Conda. Um, You know, the Lovett family were always heavily involved in social justice. Um, You know, uh, their cousins were and still are. And all of those families had a. We're continually protesting. Like I said before, we've been really well led. Um, You know, William Cooper. uh, Yeah. Was, was a massive intellect, a massive Australian intellect. You know, black or white doesn't matter. You know, he recognised what was happening to the Jewish people in World War Two before anyone else in this country, it seems. And he walked to Parliament House on on his own to protest to the Australian government um, that the the Jews of Europe needed to be protected. That was. Um, that... He's got a special place in the. Um, In Israel, um, because they recognised that he was a human who recognised them as humans and um, wanted to intervene. Uh, Whereas in Australia, um, people were, I don't know, seeming to let it happen.
0: Uncle Bruce Pascoe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, brother. That was an interview I recorded earlier this year, or part thereof. For the 400 for you, you can just go to rrr.org.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Okay, so as I threaten to do at the top of the show I am going to read Because it's Christmas Eve and, you know, it's that time of year Time to be a little bit reflective I'm going to read my essay called Ten More Days And um, here we go Read by the author It was cold It was mid-afternoon But most of all it was wet The first hard driving rain of the year a sign that the season was turning. I kept my head low, concentrating only on my footsteps, leaping over a puddle and through the gate My eye was caught by the flagpole, or more accurately, by the flag tied to it. It was a Koori flag, hanging drabbly at half-mast against the dark sky and in the incessant rain. It reminded me of where I was and why I was there. It reminded me I was in the heart of Yorta, Yorta Country. Twelve days earlier I crossed the river now known as the Murray. That river had been the lifeblood of my ancestors for generations. Its waters had filled their bellies, bathed their loved ones and ran through their veins. It was in a poor state now. The once free-flowing and untamed monolith of water that in times past crisply reflected the faces of those who gained life from it was now no more than a series of ponds. It no longer reflected anything. It took the sun as its own. In the Australia of 2014, my Aboriginality was different to those of my forebears. Not better, not worse, just different. I knew things they would not have known, and they certainly knew more than I ever will. On country, if you know how to look at the landscape, it could tell you its own history, reveal its secrets. Secrets that have been cleared, levelled or trodden on by herds I and those of my generation are basically illiterate when it comes to reading these tales The elders that could have helped interpret the scapes were long gone The knowledge and lore gone with them The languages once spoken in, that, in those places I grew up with were no more Only remnants exist Often only as words pressed on rusty town signage Uroa. Joyful, Chuka meeting of waters, Omeo, mountain, Wangaratta, home of cormorants. The invaders took the place names and then they took the places. By the late 19th century, the traditional way of life of the Yorta Yorta, Bangarang, Tungarong, and Weiwaru, the people who named the places and who had lived and thrived in what is now known as North East Victoria, had effectively been shattered and devastated. The devastation happened but not without a fight. Some of the fierce but least known battles of the colonial wars had raged long before it became known as Kelly Country, after the infamous cop killer. The survivors and the descendants of those who fought and died would be rounded up and concentrated in missions. These missions would protect those who remained. Their Aboriginality to be educated or ripped away rinsed off through the teachings of an omnipresent yet invisible white god. The survivors would take the names of foreigners, Briggs, Cooper, James, Onus, Nichols. These people with these names would have to refine their own, redefine their own heritage and their own future through a crystal prism of what is right and what is wrong. These names would become synonymous with my ancestral land, the cradle of the modern movement the fight back from dispossession, from near extinction. My people would help define what it would mean to be a modern Aboriginal. They would help define modern Australia. Indeed, the actions and the passive resistance of these history makers would help identify what it is to be Australian, whether Australians liked it or not. The men and women of Maloga and then Camaragunja missions from the remote assigned patch would be the first Aboriginal people to hold a mirror to the colonisers, Their self appointed masters. But theirs was a special type of mirror, not one that merely caught the light of the moment, but one that would also capture the faint flickering of the past and project it into the future for all to see. These leaders realised that to be born Aboriginal is to be born political. Aboriginality since invasion has been a political issue, seen as a problem that needed fixing. These leaders knew that participating in the political debate was a choice. However, whether they were subject to the machinations of the debate was not. This was something the men and women of Camaragunja Mission knew and the benefit of their actions are as much ours as they were theirs. To be seen as nothing more than a problem undoubtedly has an impact on the collective psyche, making the strident charge towards true self-determination the more remarkable. Eventually they would walk off that mission and forge a path towards social justice that has benefited people from all backgrounds with Aboriginal people at the forefront holding that mirror. The water sodden flag at Achuka Hospital was a testament to the progress made by us as a collective. Little less than a lifetime ago Aboriginal women were forced to give birth on the verandas of that same hospital. ...forbidden inside its Victorian walls. Times had changed. Nothing given to us. Every concession fought for. And now, here in the 21st century... ...here there hung our kurri flag. And it did provide comfort. I was there in the rain to see my father, Billy James. He had passed away earlier that day at the age of 65... He'd lived longer than his parents. It seems this, for Aboriginal people, is the best measure of life expectancy. And for too long, it's been too short a metric. In his lifetime, through the tireless activism and the relentlessness of those before him, those he knew, advancements in the treatment of Aboriginal people had come a long way from the assigned patch of their land on the banks of the Murray. He was Yorta Yorta through his father and Gunai Kurnai through his mother, but to the average Australian He was just an abbo. This would be a label that he and his brothers would try and shake for the rest of their lives. By the time the James boys, all six of them, were able to converse with their elders to learn what life was like on the mission, what a blessing it was when rabbits came along as a new and unending source of protein, to find out what it was like to ask permission to leave the mission, alcohol had started its devastating charge through the culture and through the people. Alcohol would stain and sanitise everything in its path. Its toxic tide would have a far more powerful bearing on the well-being and psyche of the people than the river it had replaced. It diminished the memory, clouded the judgement, silenced the discourse. Booze reduced the time spent with family and with loved ones. It was greedy, it was ruthless. Connection was lost and culture with it. In some instances, drinking would become the culture. The James boys would have to hang on to any threads that were spun their way, and whether they liked it or not, they would have to forge their own identity as Aboriginal men, just as their forebears had. In 1960, their father, Rupert, told the Benella Ensign, we, have, we, we three, him and his brothers, have a bit of Abo blood, but my grandfather came out of, from Jamaica and married a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman. It was a lie. One can only speculate why my grandfather held back the truth from the local paper. We know our lineage well. We are proud of it. We are proud to be descendants of the Tamil pastor, teacher Thomas Shadrach James. We are proud to be descendants of Ada Cooper, sister of William. We know this to be true. He knew it to be true. He told us as an old man over bottles of Schweppes in his caravan, his home. So it was with initial bewilderment that I read his words in that starchy copy of his local paper. To understand, I would have to imagine myself in his position. A black man in a white town. He and his boys weren't considered humans at all. The Australians of 1960 was less tolerant than the country we now know, although many in 2019 would happily drag us back to where that place was. He appeared in the Ensign because his boys were showing the same football prowess he had as a young man. That prowess had got him off the mission. Wangarada Football Club, along with the Salvation Army, had organised a house for him and his young family at the junction of the Ovens and King's Rivers. The river, or the rivers, regularly flooded, which led to Billy contracting rheumatic heart disease, a disease and a condition that only exists in remote aboriginal communities up north today. It is a disease that should have lost its battle against the first world, but shamefully, here in Australia, it has not. Australia's indigenous game had brought Rupert security and a form of celebrity he couldn't have imagined as a boy swimming in the river and fishing for the other great but tasty pest introduced by white fellows, redfin. Football became a new form of cultural expression for Aboriginal men. Rupert's father, Shadrach, was a key member of the formidable Gumra Gunja football team, a team that conquered all in, its, all in its path. Football gave the young men of the mission a sense of purpose, most importantly, a sense of togetherness. In a world where no one was prepared to do you a good turn, the idea that others had your back was empowering. But by 1960 the football prowess that had exalted Rupert had faded. Nobody had his back anymore, and if there was one lesson he could pass down to his boys, it would be to stick together. The referendum was still seven years off. Terra was still accepted as fact. Abbo, Bongdaki and Kuhn were all common and open descriptors of first Australians. This is well before social media. This is when people in the street, at your place of work or at the pub would say it to your face not a keyboard in sight Aboriginal children were regularly yanked from the arms of mothers, fathers, older sisters the rates of this were matched only by today's shameful standards no paper no wonder Rupert lied he even gave the paper the wrong street address he and his generation would still were still very much in survival mode It was about his children and the next generation. Out of the rain and passing through rooms of freshly born babies and the adoring arms of mothers, I can hear the slight whispers and gleeful exhilarations of new life, generations passing themselves onto fresh hearts and minds. For those fortunate enough to be in those rooms, life was once again exciting, for life fundamentally exists to give new. All these passing sights and sounds are in truth an echoic distortion set under a blur of fluorescent lights. All I can vividly recall is meeting the nurse at the door to where Dad was lying. You've got here just in time. We're about to call you. I'll let you in. The man in that room was a yorta yorta man on yorta yorta country, a Vietnam veteran and a father. His generation on paper, part of the largest and most prosperous the world had ever known. By his parents' standards, He had done well, but the double whammy of being born Aboriginal and the experience of war in all its omnidirectional terror had taken a toll. He served his country, but his country had let him down. As I stood at his bedside, the man I knew and the stories he carried were gone. The son of Rupert and Patricia, the middle boy, would be the second to join them. I was planted in that room, immobile, and through my tear-stained eyes, And beyond grief, I knew I still needed him. Not wanted, needed. Beyond that, I knew that my generation needed his generation and as long as possible to pass down their culture and their wisdom. Of course, this has been done throughout the years, in serious conversations, passing asides and late-night inebriated phone calls. Billy never lost my number. I've no doubt that given the opportunity, he could have used 10 more days with his parents and Rupert with his. The modern world was deprived us of much of that quality time, real time. Time like that is more important than ever. If I had just ten more days with him, ten more days to learn about what it was like to be a black man in a white army, to be shipped to the most violent place on earth, to face an enemy who never persecuted him or his people in the way that those who sent him there did, how did that shape the man that we knew him to be? Ten more days to get any sort of insight into how it felt to have fellow Aboriginal Man from the Commonwealth Employment Service fob him off once he discovered he was a Vietnam veteran. To be rejected by the broader Australian community was one thing. To be rejected by your own mob was something else. The often brutal nature of community politics was beginning to be forged in the battle for political territory, as human nature dictates. Organisations would rise and fall often as a result of this politics and it would be the community that would be left either to benefit or suffer the consequences. Ten more days and I would have had a chance to delve deeper behind the humorous anecdotes to gain a deeper understanding of how humour itself was a form of sustenance. Who knows what I would have discovered about him, what I would have have found out about myself. I, like him, like his parents we'll have to forge an identity using examples and principles set by those who came before us. We've come a long way, but with statistics showing only marginal improvements or stagnation across all major socio-economic indicators, there is still a long way to go. To be Aboriginal is to be political. We can participate and help shape it. We will make our own ways, as we always have. We have fought, we have died, and we have survived we have we are still here what it means to be aboriginal is constantly evolving the challenges i face today are different from the challenges of my ancestors australia isn't changing fast enough to keep up we require the ongoing leadership and empathy of aboriginal people from all nations to help foster the change australia so desperately needs we owe those who are no longer here to be our best selves to fly the flag for me I just needed that flag to fly for full for 10 more days. Well, that's it for uh, 2019 for the mission. Thank you so much for um, your support, your company. Uh, we've hopefully learned a lot together and we'll learn a lot more together in 2020. Got to say that it's an absolute ple- pleasure and privilege to be part of the Triple R family and particularly the GRID I'd like to thank Dave, I'd like to thank Beck, Elizabeth, my wonderful producer, Dylan, me and Sam, everyone (laughs) who works here at AAA, they've been fantastic and I look forward to getting back into things in 2020. I'll be back in early February if everything goes to plan. Until then, Declan will be with you, Um, he's a great host and he'll be looking after you. But until then, um, have a safe and Merry Christmas if that's what you're uh, doing, stay safe on those roads Wear sunscreen and look after each other. Till next year, sayonara. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.